Welcome to the September 1st edition of the Evolution Medicine Podcast, and today we're going to talk about high altitude, and particularly altitude adaptation and maladaptation. So my colleague, Daryl Macias, uh, got back recently from an expedition to the Himalayas, uh, where he did a body recovery of a climbing friend of his who perished more than two decades ago uh, while uh, climbing in the Himalayas. We're going to talk to Daryl sometime in the upcoming week and get uh, some additional perspectives about this trip and about his adventures and misadventures uh, and what this uh, expedition meant to him. But it raises the topic of the dangers of going to a high-altitude environment. So I'm recording this from an altitude of about 8,000 feet uh, in the mountains outside of Albuquerque, New Mexico. So this is a moderate, moderately high altitude. Uh, and we see patients on occasion that come in with altitude sickness. And this happens most often up in Taos when patients, well, we'll say skiers, travel to Taos to go skiing, arriving from lower elevations like Texas or California, not expecting that they'll be, you know, exerting themselves and spending the night at 9,000 feet or above. Many of these patients, or they become patients when they develop uh, shortness of breath and other symptoms, headache, and a variety of uh, other complaints that we collectively call mountain sickness. But when I spent some time working in the clinic up at Taos Ski Valley, it wasn't uncommon to have people come in who were profoundly hypoxic. Uh, these patients had oxygen saturations in the 70s and 80s, and sometimes when we got a chest x-ray, we would see fluid accumulating in the lungs. And these individuals had high-altitude high pulmonary edema, or HAPE. The treatment for HAPE is oxygen, so give these folks a little bit of supplementary oxygen. Many of them will, will uh, improve. Uh, sometimes vasodilators uh, can uh, be of help in that instance. And not everybody has to leave the Taos Ski Valley, but if they have a severe enough case, they'll go down to uh, the town of Taos, or even a lower altitude, where the higher oxygen partial pressure uh, in the atmosphere at low altitudes leads to a very speedy recovery. High altitude pulmonary edema is a pretty dramatic manifestation of altitude sickness. What we see more commonly is acute mountain sickness, and this comes in uh, a variety of flavors. But the way that I think about mountain sickness and the way that I teach it to my students is that it's a uh, syndrome of headache plus. So headache plus one or more other symptoms, uh, either involving the GI system with nausea vomiting uh, or the central nervous system with fatigue, dizziness, lassitude, and very commonly trouble sleeping. So I've experienced this myself uh, at 12,000 and 14,000 foot elevation where, where I've tried to spend the night at very high elevations. Um, often my sleeping is poor and interrupted. And this is a, this is a common feature uh, 
If that's accompanied by headache, then that may represent mild acute mountain sickness or mild AMS. If the headache is severe and the lassitude, fatigue, nausea, and sleep disturbance is moderately severe, we call that moderate AMS. And at its most severe manifestation, we actually see brain swelling. So here, patients are encephalopathic. They have changes in mental status, severe lassitude, staggering gait, so they can't walk, in addition to headache. And we call that high-altitude cerebral edema, or HACE. When we think about what's going on in the body of patients that have AMS or HACE or HAPE, it's useful to think about the organ systems that are being affected. So we get the brain, of course, that's going to be affected if there's cerebral edema. The lungs, if there's pulmonary edema. We see changes in the GI system that are responsible for the nausea, uh, the anorexia, when, when subjects don't want to eat. And then we also see some hematological changes. Uh, hemoconcentration, so increased red blood cell concentration that can be accompanied by uh, a capillary leak syndrome and edema. So when we took a group up to Cotopaxi up in Ecuador, one of the members of our group got pretty severe hand and feet swelling, and that was uh, probably just a mild case of uh, a capillary leak. So the capillaries fail to contain fluid in the intravascular system, and it leaks into the tissues, so you get puffy hands, puffy feet, puffy eyes. All this goes to show that many of us, genetic lowlanders, are maladapted to deal with high altitude. So even though I live at moderate altitude and I occasionally travel to high altitude, I'm not well adapted to it. In contrast, there are three major populations that have been studied. Uh, who have some adaptation to altitude. And these are the Andeans, people living in the South American Andes at 10,000 feet or higher elevation. The native peoples of the Himalayan Plateau, such as Sherpas, Tibetans. And then the third group, which is the least study, studied, are the Ethiopian Highlanders, who live at 8,000 feet uh, and above, who we think probably have lived at, the, at those altitudes the longest of those three groups. So they have uh, distinct genetic adaptations that permit uh, better adaptation and survival and reproduction at high altitude. So for the rest of us, though, it's not uncommon to at least get a headache at high altitude. Uh, again, I've experienced this, many people have, and it limits our ability to you know, climb some of the highest altitude mountains in the world. Uh, but it's something that can be achieved, certainly is better achieved with supplemental oxygen, which is a clue that really the main problem behind underlying all of acute mountain sickness, high altitude cerebral edema, high altitude pulmonary edema, is lack of oxygen delivery to the body. So that's, that's really our problem. And we, are, we have a tougher time with this than do some of the um, high altitude populations that are adapted to deal with the low partial pressure of oxygen in the atmosphere. So back in 37 BC, 
a Chinese official by the name of Tu Kin, described Himalayan Peak as Big Headache Mountain. So this is, a, again, the first historical record of acute mountain sickness and undoubtedly described uh, the experience of people that went to bed Big Headache Mountain. And that, that uh, individual may have had, in fact, a high-altitude headache or some, something on the spectrum of high-altitude cerebral edema. So the question is, why do we get that? Why, why do we get a headache? And there's still some mystery about this. Uh, but one of the things that happens to us, um, us maladapted people, is that we get intracranial vasodilation. So our blood vessels in our brains vasodilate, they get larger. And that's in response to hypoxemia. So when the blood is carrying uh, a lower uh, amount of oxygen, the low oxygen or hypoxemia triggers blood vessel dilation or vasodilation in the brain. So that might be, uh, you might think of that as being a useful thing. And I think that what we're seeing here is an adaptive trait, which is maladaptive at high altitude. So how could this possibly be an adaptive thing? Well, when you're having a brain injury or, you know, God forbid, a stroke, and part of your brain is deprived of oxygen, one of the first things that happens to the surviving tissue around the damage is that those blood vessels in those areas vasodilate and deliver higher, uh, more blood flow, more oxygen, to tissues that are deprived of it. So this is a protective and beneficial adaptation, part of our physiology that allows us to cope with uh, injury and allows us to uh, survive tra traumatic events, ischemic events at low altitude. So adaptive at low altitude, but maladaptive at high altitude, where the hypoxemia and the vasodilation uh, can then lead to some, some cerebral edema and haste or high altitude cerebral edema, headache, uh, so on and so forth. And again, it's thought that even people that, that, that don't have, you know, what we call clinical high altitude cerebral edema, that just have a headache, probably have some degree of capillary leak and some edema uh, that are, that's accompanying the vasodilation in the brain. In the lungs, we see kind of an opposite phenomenon, and that is evidence of vasoconstriction. There is a recent study in which pulmonary catheters were placed in climbers uh, hiking in the Himalayas, and at high altitudes, they registered uh, high pulmonary artery pressures. So the uh, pulmonary arteries undergo a vasoconstriction, and the high that high pressure is oftentimes also accompanied by a capillary leak syndrome. And high pressure was associated with the development of high altitude pulmonary edema. So in patients, some of these people developed shortness of breath, exercise intolerance, um, in worst cases, frothing at the mouth with, with a pink frothy sputum from excessive um, vasodilation, or rather vasoconstriction. And the capillary leak syndrome in which fluid escaped from capillary beds into the alveoli causing cough and uh, an inability of the lungs to take up oxygen. So of course that's going to just make things worse.
So in lowland Texans that drive to New Mexico or, or fly uh, to Santa Fe and drive up to Taos, um, we see this all the time in, in, uh, in our, some of our high-altitude ski resorts. The lung vessels essentially shrink, uh, pressure goes up, and fluid leaks out. And we see these fluffy infiltrates on x-ray. Uh, the treatment, again, is oxygen. So we put these people on supplemental oxygen by face mask or by nasal cannula, and a lot of times they'll uh, show some improvement. Once again, I think this is a, a good example of what is part of normal physiology at low altitude and is a beneficial response to low oxygen in the lungs that goes awry at high altitude. So what do I mean by that? Well, if you have, suppose you have a pneumonia, we don't normally get pneumonia that affects the entire lung. It can happen, but usually it's just a part. So if you are unlucky enough to inhale uh, streptococcus pneumoniae and it takes up residence and starts to replicate in your lung, you'll end up with a low bar, low bar pneumonia. So one lobe of the lung may be affected by uh, inflammation, collection of fluid, pus, and it's visible on x-ray as a, as a white infiltrate on, on a chest radiograph. The rest of the lung is relatively spared. So how does your body respond to the low oxygen in that affected part of the lung because it's filling up with pus and fluid? Well, the, what happens is you end up with a pulmonary vasoconstriction of the capillary beds in that area. So as in the alveoli, as the partial pressure of oxygen goes down and the blood that uh, supplies an alveolus and the carbon dioxide level goes up, we see the pulmonary arterioles can, vasoconstricting. So the little blood vessels again shrink. So that whole network of, of, uh, of capillaries that is under ordinary circumstances supplying blood to the lung and getting oxygenated in the process if for some reason there's the oxygenation is not happening and the blood flows uh, flowing through that area has lower than normal oxygen and higher than normal carbon dioxide, uh, the blood vessels shrink. So the, the consequence of this is that overall the global flow of the blood is shunted to the healthy parts of your lungs. So this is a, this is again part of normal human physiology. It allows the body to adapt to a challenge posed by infection. So in the areas that are getting lots of oxygen in healthy parts of the lungs, those blood vessels, the pulmonary arterioles, vasodilate and get larger. So whereas the affected areas, the, the blood vessels have shrunk down, we see the opposite in the healthy part of the lung. So this is a matching of ventilation and perfusion. It maintains a normal-ish oxygen saturation. And it has the effect of moving blood towards the normal part of the lung to maintain normal oxygen take up to, and deliver to the rest of your body. But without this, we would be profoundly sicker if we got pneumonia uh, because a lot of the blood going to the sick part of the lung uh, wouldn't be oxygenated and we would have a, a tough time coping. So what we see as a helpful host defense, a benefit during low altitude pneumonia is exactly the wrong thing when 
every alveolus is exposed to low oxygen tension at high altitude. So in people that have not lived at high altitude and they, they go up to these place, uh, ski resorts, they get sick because every breath they take in has a relatively low partial pressure of oxygen. So the little alveolus is experiencing, this is the, the terminal part of the, uh, the lung uh, that is responsible for um, where, the, where oxygen is taken up from the air sacs into the blood. So at the level of the alveolus, the entire lung is experiencing low oxygen. And the blood that is traversing that area is relatively hypoxemic. So the helpful, beneficial post-defense response that helps you during pneumonia here causes vasoconstriction throughout the entire lung and makes the pulmonary arterial pressure go up. When that, when that is accompanied by a capillary leak, which does happen as a result of this low oxygen tension, we get fluid accumulating in the lungs, and that causes a vicious cycle. So this is a bad thing to happen to you if you are hiking on Mount Everest, and unless it's recognized and supplemental oxygen or descent can be arranged, uh, people can get into really uh, into, into trouble very, very fast. So a third area of adaptation or mal maladaptation is what happens to blood. And we know that, again, even, even us unadapted lowlanders, if we live at high altitude, our bodies will respond by producing more red blood cells. So my, if you were to measure my hemoglobin, it would be higher than it was when I went to medical school at UCLA, uh, by virtue now of having lived in New Mexico for uh, several years. So we know that the hemoglobin uh, measured among people at Albuquerque or in Denver, Colorado, uh, in a male is going to be higher than um, an in same individual living in Cleveland, Ohio, or Santa Cruz, California. And I'll post uh, some a graph that shows this quite nicely on the on the blog. So one of the high altitude groups, the Andeans, and these have been studied by Cynthia Bell over many years, seem to have an adaptation that involves higher than normal levels of hemoglobin. So they, they uh, have an adaptation that confers a greater oxygen carrying capacity, and their physiology looks very much like a well-acclimatized lowlander in that males particularly have higher numbers of red cells circulating in their bodies. And we can measure this by looking at the hemoglobin concentration. And males uh, from, say, an Amira population in Bolivia at 4,000 meters will have an, an looks like a median hemoglobin on the order of 18 grams per deciliter, whereas the rest of us that are living at sea level, uh, males will have a median hemoglobin of about 14. So a, a remarkable change, and there's almost no overlap between uh, those frequency distributions of the Amira males and sea level males. So big difference. So the idea is that the Andeans, who descended from a relatively small number of East Asians who crossed the Bering Strait some 15,000 years ago or, or longer, uh, have, uh, despite this population bottleneck um, adapted to high altitude by 
having a higher than normal uh, concentration of hemoglobin. And we've found genetic determinants of this trait, or when I say we, I mean Cynthia Bell and her colleagues. And there's a, there's a great deal to the story. It's, it's actually a fascinating one. Um, but the Andeans that do have the capacity to have a higher oxygen saturation, it's been shown, have more babies, have better um, success with, with pregnancy, and it appears to confer a fitness benefit uh, for that uh, high altitude population living with hypobaric hypoxia, so low pressure, uh, lack of oxygen in the atmosphere. Tibetans, by contrast, are different. Their adaptation to high altitude seems to involve mostly a respiratory adaptation. So the hemoglobin concentration of Tibetans looks more like a lowland uh, individual, say, in Los Angeles, as compared to an Andean. Uh, but they're different in that they increase their oxygen uptake by taking more breaths per minute than people that live at sea level. This, again, is work done by Cynthia Bell. Um, if you compare the Amira uh, to Tibetans, um, resting ventilation is higher in uh, the Tibetan group as compared to the Andean South American group. So, again, pretty remarkable difference in terms of this respiratory adaptation to altitude. And I mentioned that Again, I'll pick on the poor Texans that go up to Taos, uh, that they have high pulmonary artery pressures in the hypoxic environment. So we measure hypoxic pulmonary hypertension in people that are not genetically adapted to altitude if they rapidly ascend to high altitudes like Taos Ski Valley. We don't see similar pulmonary hypertension in Tibetans. So this has been um, studied among healthy Tibetans at 6,000, I'm sorry, 3,600 meters elevation that they didn't have any of the, the pulmonary vasoconstriction. So, so clearly they have, they're avoiding this trade-off between adaptation to hypoxia or, or regional hypoxia that happens in pneumonia and the problem of high altitude pulmonary edema that happens to us genetic lowlanders. The Tibetans have somehow adapted a way of a better way of coping with that problem. And so they don't get pulmonary hypertension. And beyond that, Tibetans are also protected from a thing called chronic mountain sickness. So chronic mountain sickness or Manjay's disease is a syndrome of excessive production of red cells. So whereas the hemoglobin is higher among normal healthy Andeans at altitude compared to the rest of us, people with Manger's disease have an even higher, so an exaggerated erythrocytosis, so they make even more red blood cells and get sick as a result. Blood starts to sludge, uh, the uptake of oxygen in blood, which is thick with too many red blood cells, just becomes inefficient, and this leads to profound hypoxemia, so low oxygen saturation, and congestive heart failure and death. Now the coolest thing of all is that if you look at a healthy Andean or a healthy Tibetan and measure their oxygen saturation, they, they will do better than we do. Again, by we I mean the genetic lowlanders. So they'll, they'll, have, a, they'll have better 
oxygen saturations than a lowlander, but it still is, is low as compared to a lowlander at low altitude. What's remarkable is that the Ethiopians, the third group, they don't have any evidence of low oxygen saturation. And they don't breathe faster like the, the, like the Tibetans. They don't make more red blood cells like the Andeans. And they don't seem to suffer, from what we can gather, altitude-related pulmonary edema or uh, vasoconstriction with hypoxemia um, that we see in other groups. And they don't get the exaggerated red cell production that we see in Monge's disease. So Ethiopians seem to be doing it right in terms of their adaptation. We, don't, we still don't know exactly how this happens. Uh, but the best guess is just from, again, looking at the evolution of this trait, uh, that the Ethiopians have lived at high altitudes longer than the other two groups. And with that long duration of exposure to low oxygen partial pressures, that that has given them more time to evolve adaptations. So I keep expecting to learn how exactly the Ethiopians do it. Uh, part, part of this is limited by the fact that the Ethiopian group is harder to study. Um, there's political problems in Ethiopia. Uh, it's a harder group to get to. Um, there's been a lot of genetic admixture in Ethiopia where uh, mig migration from other regions has um, led to uh, you know, uh, a certain fairly high high frequency of European genes and, and among um, Ethiopians that are studied, so that can that can be difficult in in teasing out some of the genetic adaptation to altitude. But suffice it to say that uh, the high altitude Ethiopian Highlanders um, have the best adaptation to altitude, and it remains a, a bit of a, a mystery. So just to recap, we lowlanders we're we're well adapted to deal with uh, hypoxemia when it happens to our, our lungs or our brain, um, because we can deal with stresses like pneumonia, brain injury, uh, with uh, what appear to be protective mechanisms. So in the instance of the brain, we, that causes hypoxemia-related vasodilation, uh, which helps us if we're having a stroke. And if we're having a pneumonia or a pulmonary infarct, let's say, or a lung, part of the lung fills up with pus, the lung responds by shunting blood to other parts of the uh, healthier parts of the lung, and this is, this is achieved by uh, when the alveolus detects low oxygen, it causes vasoconstriction. So when I say we're well adapted, we're well adapted to things that happen to us at low altitude. We're badly adapted to high altitude. Those protective mechanisms that are perhaps good for us if we have a, a brain injury or a lung infection, well, they go they go completely haywire at high altitude. And so this is what is responsible for acute mountain sickness and in a, to a certain degree is responsible for high altitude pulmonary edema and cerebral edema. There's more to the story. Uh, there's some very interesting uh, areas of overlap between sepsis and high altitude sickness that I have uh, spent some time thinking about. So we may save that for a future episode. Um, or we may save it for our discussion with uh, Daryl when we talk about his uh, this recent expedition to the Himalayas. So with that, we'll, um, we will bring this podcast to a close and we'll visit again next week.